Hi, ASS203 students. Welcome back to Being Human with a Non-Human and to Lecture 5. Uh, we are in the week just before the inter-trimester break, and I'm sure that many of us are looking forward to the break, uh, not only as a moment to rest and reflect on the craziness of the past month, um, but also hopefully as a way to gather ourselves and um, perhaps revise and review some of the learning um, in your respective units. And I hope that you will be doing the same uh, for this unit. Uh, just to remind us where we are, uh, we are in week five, and that is the start of module three. Um, and to recall, in module one, which was weeks one and two, uh, we looked at the questions of what is a human, what is a person, as a way to get us to appreciate and understand uh, the many different ways in which different groups around the world would respond to that question, and also to get us to question some of our own assumptions, um, which we might think of as universal, uh, with regard to the question of what is a human and what is a person. In module two, which was weeks three and four, uh, we looked at how we might begin to group things together, uh, like, uh, you know, in terms of a category of a human or a category of a person. And we looked at acts of classifying, uh, the certain sort of principles uh, of logic that underscored how we assumed and how we rationalized things as going together um, in one way and not going together in another way. And so these um, acts of classifying then laid the foundation for us to appreciate uh, a different uh, way of classifying person and uh, in that way a different definition of what person could be. And last week we looked at the Mills reading that suggested personhood as a category not bounded by human body or even by consciousness or agency in any way, but as an organizational activity. So this is really quite, um, I think, radical in some way, and it still might be perplexing for some of us in other ways. So if that's the case, I would just recommend that in the break, you might review some of the lectures, um, both either recordings or um, the lecture slides, and go back to certain readings uh, for uh, additional clarification. And I just suggest this as a way to make sure that we all have a good foundation uh, from which to then uh, absorb and you know engage with the uh, learnings for the rest of trimester. So again, we are in lecture five, we're at the start of module three, and I've called this module Beyond Nature Culture. Now, what is nature slash culture? Uh, in a way, we're regarding nature slash culture as one pair of classifying terms that has been used to frame a certain way of thinking about the relationship between humans and non-humans. Um, and by non-humans here, I'm referring specifically to non-humans of the natural world, quote unquote, all right? So this pair of terms, nature slash culture, and the relationship between them 
has been generally understood as one that is mutually exclusive, that is, as either or, right? So if something is um, classified in the category of nature, then it is uh, not classified in the category of culture and vice versa. And for this, I mean, I had a kind of video, a set of videos that I'd love to show you all, um, but I think that uh, the limits of recording through Blackboard Collaborate are uh, showing themselves. And if I were giving this in a lecture room on campus uh, and using Deacon video, then I would uh, very easily and seamlessly be able to show these videos and get you thinking um, and reflecting on these terms. But because I can't, I would uh, advise you or you know, recommend that you click on the links in this um, next slide and actually view them before you proceed with the lecture. And I, and I suggest this just as a way uh, uh, for you to engage more, uh, to be less passive, maybe be more active in your engagement. But also I think um, it is uh, quite helpful to think about what we already assume and how um, the learning in this week will hopefully, again, review, revise, expand um, some of the uh, assumptions that we might already have. So I would um, highly suggest that you look at these two links uh, and think about what comes into your mind uh, with regard to this question, what is nature, and then this other question, what is culture, right? And just uh, write down maybe some of the ideas uh, that you had when you viewed these uh, clips. And I invite you definitely to write your responses down uh, in the discussion board. So I'll, in fact, create new threads um, in the discussion board where you can post uh, your uh, responses. Now, this module is uh, composed of week five, which is this week, and then in week six, which is after the inter-trimester break, um, we uh, want to attempt to go beyond nature and culture. Uh, so I'm already flagging uh, to you what we're going to be doing. We want to go beyond nature and culture, and we do this by uh, paying particular attention to the works of Philippe Descola, who is uh, a contemporary French anthropologist. So just to recap, have a look at these slide, at these links and um, have a think about what comes into your mind. What you might think is um, part, perhaps part of nature, what is part of culture, and whether or not the video excerpts um, corroborate or perhaps open up more questions for you. Okay, so just to proceed then, um, and assuming you've already done this, I'm going to go on to uh, briefly elaborate on these terms, on these classifying categories, and also on the um, assumed relationship between them. Okay, I've already talked about the relationship as being mutually exclusive. Uh, so let's elaborate on this and where this has come from. So in very brief, rather simplistic uh, uh, terms, nature is the earth. It is composed of material things from carbon atoms to plants, animals, and mountains. In this definition, these things do not in themselves have mind or consciousness, and therefore 
these things, these um, material objects grouped together under this classifying term called nature cannot be persons. Culture, on the other hand, is the consciousness of human being. And by human being here, which is capitalized, I'm extending beyond this idea of human being as homo sapiens, but human being as a kind of consciousness manifest through language, symbols, intelligence and emotions, and expressed through arts and technology. In this preliminary, and again I say simple definition, culture is the immaterial principle that organizes how human beings interact with nature and really with themselves, right? In this first sort of introduction to these terms, the relationship between nature on the one hand and culture on the other hand is typically expressed as a dichotomy. That is, a relationship that is opposed and mutually exclusive. Again, being mutually exclusive is not something that should come as a, as a new term for you. We have covered the idea of being mutually exclusive um, in module two. And again, the principle of non-contradiction uh, rests on that whole idea, right? So this dichotomy also rests on an assumption that there is an incommensurability. Note this word, incommensurability between the world of matter or nature on the one hand and the world of consciousness or culture on the other hand. So I guess there are different ways to think through this incommensurability. One is through the very practical kind of almost common sense way, we don't have to think about it too much, that if something is um, a, a part of nature, like dirt is part of nature, stones are part of nature, uh, trees are part of nature. There is therefore in that idea that dirt, stones and trees are incommensurable with the world of consciousness. And by this, we refer to the world of consciousness glossed as culture, we're saying there is no way that we can consider dirt and stones and trees as having any kind of consciousness. Um, and I've drawn those particular examples because they are much clearer examples in a way than other things like plants and animals, right? So let's just take that example and say if we consider dirt, stones and trees as classified within this uh, term called nature, then this um, term, nature, is not commensurable with. It. There's no way to measure that against this other term that we call culture. And here culture is taken to be an immaterial principle that organizes uh, interactions, that is about consciousness and is about language, symbols, um, intelligence, and emotion, right? So again, this is our first slide. This is our opening foray into the whole idea. And as you already know, we're going to try to go beyond this. We're going to definitely question this uh, supposed distinction and incommensurability.
But first, we have to really try to appreciate what is being suggested here and where it's come from, where this idea has come from. Um, this nature slash culture uh, set of terms, I would say, is one way of expressing a dualism or a dichotomy. And this dualism is specifically uh, a substance dualism, right? And substance dualism here uh, is a particular form of dualism. So what is a dualism? It relates back to this idea or this concept of duality in which dual concepts are incommensurable. That is, one cannot conceptually, and here we are dealing um, at the level of an abstraction and concept, that one cannot conceptually collapse into the other or vice versa. For instance, substance dualism, which is a specific kind of dualism within philosophical terms, right, posits that mind and matter are dual and not single. Therefore, mind manifests according to mental attributes such as emotion, intelligence, consciousness, and matter manifests in tangible material things such as rocks, but also animals and the human body. The idea is that you have these two ideas, these concepts, mind on the one hand, matter on the other hand, and they are dual. They are not single, as in both part of the same uh, thing. That would, be, uh, that would be a philosophical theory of monism, and Leibniz would be the kind of key philosopher there to posit a monism of mind and matter. Ultimately, they are one, right? In fact, substance dualism is a different kind of philosophical precept, and it posits that mind and matter are dual and incommensurable. You can't collapse one into the other. Substance dualism in sort of uh, every day, you know, uh, in how we understand it, is expressed through a variety of terms. Nature slash culture is only one way of expressing this concept of substance dualism. There's also consciousness slash body, or material slash immaterial, uh, physical slash metaphysical, and moving on perhaps into more practical terms, biology slash spirit, or science slash religion. When you think about that, science, religion as, you know, two ways of grappling with this idea that there is a dualism in terms of how um, the world and how we are constructed and that these two concepts, these two parts are not commensurable. Where has substance dualism come from? As a philosophical precept, right? Because we have to appreciate it comes from somewhere, and it's certainly not the overarching um, sort of precept in terms of Western philosophy even. I mean, as I said, Leibniz uh, proposed not dualism, but monism, this idea that mind and body were ultimately one. Um, but here we are dealing with substance dualism. It says it's, things are dual, or mind and matter is dual and incommensurable. And it is a legacy of this guy, René Descartes, who was a French philosopher who lived from 1596 to 1650. So many of you, perhaps some of you, will have already encountered Descartes, perhaps through um, 
uh, you know, uh, taking units in philosophy, but also through kind of our readings in anthropology, because uh, Descartes' work has been very much the sort of um, foundation for which to understand something that we call Cartesianism, all right? So it comes, Cartesianism comes from the word Cartesian, and Cartesian, again, comes from Descartes, part of, it's the second part of his last name. So Descartes was considered to be the father of modern philosophy, and he was important as this father of modern philosophy because of his break from Aristotelian and Socratic philosophy and for his promotion of a new mechanistic science. And by a new mechanistic science, I refer to here not only in terms of the um, science that we might think of in our everyday um, language now, but also of a new mechanistic science with regard to the human person. Okay, so for the former, the fundamental Cartesian method, sorry, uh, for the former in relation to this slide, so his break from Aristotelian and Socratic philosophy, the fundamental Cartesian method is to consider everything as a matter of doubt. So he says as a way to sort of start with our understanding of word of the world, doubt everything. And then we start to see that for him, to consider anything with doubt meant that he had to set up one principle. And the one principle that he set up was this, I exist, quote unquote, right? So it was a method that was to consider as false anything that could be subject to the slightest doubt, except for the one thing that he knew, which was that there was some doubting everything. And this subject that was not, um, in a way, because it was doubting, it could not be doubted, right, was the certainty that rested in the eye, the eye that could doubt. And so in terms of um, his famous saying, cogito ergo sum, which is, I think, therefore I am, in a way, it really should have been, I doubt, therefore I am. But anyway, whatever it is, however we want to see this, we can see that for Descartes, his method was to set up to doubt. And what he couldn't doubt was the fact that he was doubting. And so that certainty was what um, underscored the idea of cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And from this axiom, from this principle, the only one that he could know, what he then proceeded to do was set up a dualistic framework between immaterial mind and material external body. And it is this dualism, understood as substance dualism, that he informs his arguments on uh, human person, but also then his arguments on mechanistic science. And if we were to take this particular axiom, and follow it through. For Descartes then, what he thought about animals was quite specific. And here again, I'm going to refer back to how even someone like Linnaeus, the father of modern biology and the creator of the binomial classificatory system, right, wasn't so sure that apes were, did not have souls. Whereas for Descartes, 
there was no doubt because the, he could doubt anything that apes did or animals did or were seen to do, right? And so for Descartes, what was really important was this particular sort of set of characteristics with regard to animals. And again, with regard to most um, any living thing. It was only human mind and human consciousness, the ability to say, I think, therefore I am, that was um, able to be defined as mind. Right? There was no other mind for Descartes. And everything else was substance or matter. And so for Descartes, an animal was something called he called res automaton, which is automatic body, right? automatic matter. This amounts pretty much to the statement that they are, quote-unquote, machines. And in this framework of substance dualism, animals also did not think, had no language, had no self-consciousness. And then relatedly, points five and six had no consciousness and were devoid of feelings. Now, um, this is adapted from Harrison, in 19, uh, who wrote in 1992. And Harrison points out that points five and six are, in fact, debatable. If we looked at Descartes' writing, we could, writings, we could perhaps say that he was not quite as certain or as sure with those last two points. But he was very, very clear on the first four points, that animals were automatic body, and in that, in that regard, machines, did not think, had no language, and had no self-consciousness. So this has really um, shaped, in many ways, our um, current thinking, at least thinking in certain fields of philosophy and also in modern science, with regard to animals and to what they are. Uh, there is, in fact, a very interesting essay um, called Two Lessons on Animal and Man um, by another and more contemporary, more recent French philosopher named Gilbert Simondon. Um, and in sort of previous years, I've sort of elaborated um, on those two lectures. I won't do that in this lecture today, but for anyone who is interested, um, please post on discussion board and I might even see if um, those essays are available for you. I certainly um, will write the reference uh, down for you so you can locate it. But in any regard, this idea, Descartes' idea framed by substance dualism on animals has shaped how animals uh, continue to be regarded um, for a significant part of philosophical and scientific thinking. And in many ways, it's even influenced anthropological literature. So that previous anthropological literature has been very much informed by the framework of this dichotomy that anthropologists had previously, and perhaps some of them, many of them still do, assume that the classifying terms of nature and culture also applied to other groups and cultures, right? So in this regard, I mean, we even have to look at the work of um, a very famous anthropologist, Levi Strauss. In the examples we have read, 
that have assumed a fundamental dichotomy between nature and culture, where he says, quote, in 1966, each animal or plant corresponds to a natural element, close quote. Or another quote, analysis of the ritual shows that it accords in every detail with the hypothesis that there is a dualism between a celestial prey and a subterranean hunter, close quote. So in these writings, what Levi-Strauss had, had assumed was that nature was a stable category. And it was cultures that interacted with this stable category differently and in different ways, right? But he assumed, in order to take this, um, he assumed that there was a fundamental dichotomy in, between nature and culture and that this was universally applied. So this dichotomy exists even though the modes and methods of classification varied and the ways of including nature into society were multiple. Um, so I hope that you understand this particular point. We're dealing here with two levels. At one level, we're dealing with a meta-conceptual, philosophical level that talks about nature and culture as an expression of substance dualism, right? And that is a philosophical framework. How nature and culture relate to each other are sort of um, sort of at another level. They're at the level of the ethnographic, perhaps. They're at the level of analysis. And at this level, nature is assumed to be a stable category um, and that cultures interact with it differently and in different ways. At this other level, at this ethnographic and analysis level, uh, we can see Levi-Strauss working uh, out uh, you know how to, how to think how to think through the ethnographic materials that he's dealing with, and this is where these quotes like um, about animals and plants corresponding to a natural element, or that there's a dualism in celestial prey and subterranean hunter, uh, should be read. And at another level, and I'm going here back to the meta sort of philosophical level, this is what's being um, sort of uh, this is what's underpinning or underscoring uh, these other levels of analysis. So it's important to be clear, I think, with our own engagements about what levels we're dealing with. Are we dealing at a kind of meta-conceptual level that's kind of abstract? Or are we dealing at levels that are more sort of empirical, evidence-based, you know, analytical? Uh, those are um, that might be informed by these uh, conceptual and meta um, sort of philosophical frames. Okay, so I just wanted to point that out because I think it will be helpful for us uh, as we proceed and as we go forward. All right, so perhaps already some of you are thinking, hmm, that's a bit weird, this dichotomy between nature and culture. Surely from the video excerpts that I, I've seen, you know, I, I don't you know, I don't really get that. It's a bit weird. I mean, you know, I, I certainly maybe I don't think of my um, dog as just being within this sort of zone of or term or category of nature. You know, it's certainly. And then there's something else. What about humans? I mean, surely humans are also part of nature. I mean, certainly if we think about Homo sapiens and we think about, you know, what we learned about, you know, human beings and things. I mean, so I mean, we're composed of DNA and matter. Right. I can I can hit myself and go, oh, yeah, that's pretty solid right there. You know, so what, what's going on here? How do we then understand the paradox of human being? Because, as I've said, on the one hand, we are homo sapiens. That is a biological species defined by physical characteristics and morphology. 
right? Um, and, you know, we're very much sort of made up of matter. Um, when we die, we decompose uh, into matter. So, I mean, what's going on here? However, we'll also be aware that our understanding of human being, as we know, is always more than the biological. And it's certainly the case when we've been reading in terms of other cultures and other groups and under other perspectives of, of understanding um, human beings, certainly more than the biological. I mean, Indigenous Australians can feel beyond the body, you know, they're saying. And then there are other ways of thinking about how human being, even from week one, was talking about it being defined in terms of not divine. Right. And also, on the other hand, we're not animals because we have this ability to um, make things, the ability of hope as homo faber to plan for and control one's fate and environment. Right. And we're also not animals because we have uh, this ability as homo loquens uh, to communicate but not only communicate through speech, but through symbols and things like rituals and events. And, you know, all of these things are surely coming in here in some kind of manner. So on the one hand, we are homo sapiens and biological. So we are part of nature in that regard. And we are certainly in that regard as being subject to the life cycle of life and death, um, not divine. But on the other hand, we are surely more than animals, right? Because we are able to do all these things and communicate in these ways. And surely, I mean, if we can think, we are surely superior, aren't we? Superior self-conscious. So here we have the paradox of human being expressed, not only in terms of this sort of um, positing of a substance dualism, but just even in terms of who we are. We're not divine on the one hand, but we're not animal on the other hand. So where do we sit? And we're not divine because we, you know, in that regard, we uh, kick in our biological sort of attributes and say, oh, we die, we decompose, we have matter. But then on the other hand, we're not animal because we are more than animal, right? We're more superior in terms of our ability to communicate, all these things. So what we're seeing very clearly is a kind of, um, oh, I'm sorry that this uh, slide's messed up, but what we're seeing is a kind of double movement, right? From animality to humanity on the top slide. But then does it follow that we go from humanity to animality? Question mark, right? And here I just wanted to uh, read a quote by Ingold, who is um, one of the required readings for this week. And in this um, required reading, Ingold writes, it follows that. Although we may launch an inquiry into human animality, right, into that sort of animal qualities of human beings. So, you know, the fact that we are matter, that we have certain sort of natural processes in our digestive system, you know, the fact that our heart beats like a kind of machine in this way, right, we can talk about human animality. There can be no inquiry into the humanity of non-human animals. That is, Acts which, if performed by humans, we would have no hesitation in regarding as intentionally motivated and culturally designed, would, if performed by animals, have to be explained as the automatic output of an innate, genetically determined neural mechanism, close quote. There's a lot going on in this quote. I urge you to read it again in your own time. Because, again, recall that this quote is being 
uh, written under the framework of substance dualism, right? Under the framework of Descartes thinking of animals as automatic body, as pretty much quote unquote machines. This is why we would say if we, we did one thing, if we use the rock and substitute that as a hammer, it would be regarded as intentionally motivated, culturally designed. We know that this rock can act as a hammer. Or we know that if we throw, if we uh, take something and lift it at a distance and throw it down, it will crack. All of these actions, these acts performed by humans would be regarded as intentionally motivated and culturally designed. However, if an animal were to do that, if a chimpanzee or even a bird were to take a rock and smash it on a nut in order to open it, if we were, if it were to lift a stone and drop it down so that it could smash on something else, those same actions would have to be explained as the automatic output of an innate, genetically determined neural mechanism. Right? Somehow they have an instinct to do that, those animals. They have a kind of, you know, uh, biologically sort of determined thing and it's evolved to do that because, you know, um, the ones who didn't do that clearly died out. So it's all about sort of an evolutionary adaptation rather than moments of intention and creativity. Now, why is that the case though? Why do we de de sort of divorce human, um, sorry, divorce animals from any kind of intention and any kind of creativity. I mean, and that is what this um, reading by Ingalls, which is, I, I say, an introduction to an edited collection. So it's not in itself a full reading. It's referring to lots of other readings that are part of this book, right? But if we're to take that reading, read it seriously, that is what's being suggested. There can be no inquiry into the humanity of non-human animals. And why is that the case? So this is really interesting. And so as interesting as the paradox of human, we should be looking also at the paradox of animals. And what is being suggested in the other reading for this week, the other required reading by Eduardo Cohn, is that in opposition to literature that presents the relationship between humans and animals through a framework marked by a distinction of duality, there is another literature that emphasizes how animals may be conscious, how they may be intentional beings, and their reactions less automatic instincts and more emotions of fear, hunger, and anxiety. So there is a way, a general sort of push in an opposite direction to say, well, that's a bit unfair because we can see through very, very clear scientific observation of animal etiology and behavior, that they do things in certain ways that um, are less sort of, um, sort of classified as automatic and more classified as creative or emotional. So, I mean, what, what is that pushing up? And again, I refer back to uh, Linnaeus, who observed through his detailed um, observations of apes that he wasn't actually so sure they didn't have souls. So there was, there was something there, um, and there's something there even within the scientific literature that points to um, sort of a gray zone that might question this substance dualism, all right? So um, I would urge you to read um, Cohn's article on the runa of the Amazon 
and how they regard dogs' dreams. Not that, you know, uh, or question of whether dogs dream or not. No, I mean, I think that's taken for granted. But how dogs dream and what this means for um, dogs in terms of their place in Runa society, but also in terms of communication uh, between species. Um, and in this regard, Cohn writes, dogs are not merely represented for the Runa, but they also represent and they do so without having to speak, quote unquote. So there, re there are real implications here on what we think about um, making and doing, which is homo favor, but also what we think about communicating and speaking, which is homo loquium. And really that perhaps our distinction and our superiority based on these certain assumed uh, principles might not be so clear. All right, so that's what I think a lot of the more recent literature, even in, in science journals um, on, on animals and animal behavior are, are bringing up. Uh, some further complexities here to think about language, again, as maybe a mark of human ability to think and therefore to exist, right? Cogito ergo sum. But that language here is taken both as communication and or as a model for an instrument of cognition. And the latter, this point raised by Chomsky, um, for example, thinks that language is first and foremost an instrument of cognition or a modeling device that enables its possessors to construct in the imagination possible future worlds, alternative scenarios and plans for action. As such, language as speech does not lie on an evolutionary continuum with nonverbal communication. So Chomsky would, very be would be clearly arguing for a kind of language that animals cannot possess. So Ingle might take language as communication, right? But then there's another kind of alternative um, counter argument to that that says really language as speech is an instrument of cognition that allows us to model and construct in the imagination possible future worlds. And we cannot be sure that animals can do that. So again, here's another sort of um, argument that might say, all right, you know, there's, no, there's no way we can determine that. Um, consider all these arguments, I would say, as making the case or not for the distinctiveness or not of human being and how. This is not something I suggest that you can come to terms with even at the end of this unit, but I would suggest that you, we can all keep thinking about and keep considering how all these different arguments make the case or not. All right? And one set of arguments that does try to address this is um, presented, um, and I'll just do this very, um, cover it very briefly because we'll look at him in more detail on, um, in week six, is Descola on nature and culture. What he says, the dualism of nature and culture inevitably generates strategies of anthropological explanation that are congruent with this distinction and which gravitate around one or another of two monist poles, one on the one hand naturalist and the other culturalist, right? The former, the naturalist asserts that nature being a mere adaptation to biological and ecological constraints should be explained exclusively by the kind of mechanisms uncovered by the natural sciences. On the other hand, the latter culturalist 
surmises that culture constitutes an entirely distinct order of reality, which entertains only contingent relations with the natural environment and the requisites of human metabolism. In spite of this often very polemical bipolarity, the prejudices are quite similar on both sides, as they are both equally based upon the belief that everybody everywhere necessarily sees the world as carved out along the same dividing line, close quote. Now that point that I've highlighted at the bottom, that's the main point that I want you to get from all of this as a way to go beyond nature and culture. Right, so this is um, really clear, and especially when he talks about the kinds of mechanisms uncovered by natural science, the ability to ask questions and answer questions that are about the how, how does this happen, right? And that the questions of the why are really about culture. They're really about um, you know why this happens in a metaphysical way. Again, science or religion. I mean, these are. Um, I, I would suggest, actually, um, remnants of ways of thinking that might continue to persist even in our own ways of dealing with this material. All right. In order to dismantle nature and in order to dismantle this assumed stability of the term nature, some literature in the social sciences has attempted to show how there's been a redefinition or a reconstruction so that nature is not a stable or a centralized term, but rather one that is part of political and social context, right? I'm going to be talking about all of these different points in week six. I just wanted to flag it here as something that's already been done within the literature um, in the social sciences. Um, and perhaps, in a way, if we want to go back to our idea about animals and the paradox of animals, then the question is not what is an animal, but more aptly phrased, what does an animal do? And in this way, we are picking up from Mills' suggestion last week that person denotes an organizational activity and a way of signaling intentionality. So then why couldn't animal intentionality and creativity, for example, be indicative of personhood? This is a real question. I mean, if we were to take Mills' suggestion of a different definition of person, then we can see perhaps quite clearly that the activities and actions of animals as documented by, you know, scientific um, ethno etiologists and animal behaviorists by persons, any persons who observe animal behavior and action closely, that these could signal a kind of organizational activity and therefore be attributed a kind of intentionality that's indicative of personhood. I mean, this is just a way for us to say, if we change the way we organize how we think of things going together and therefore change our definition of what something is, we might be able to include more than or other things within these categories. Or, as Ingle suggests on page eight, the question of human consciousness must be separated from that of animal thinking. Maybe it's the fact that the animal that does not premeditate and plan is not an automaton, but a conscious agent. But if we want to say that, then we have to say that consciousness is no longer to be seen as a capacity to generate thoughts, but as a process or movement of which thoughts are an inessential byproduct, close quote. So I guess what's being suggested here, what I'd like you to see, is that if you change one thing, 
it kind of signals a kind of uh, wave of changes for other things and other assumptions. It kind of like ripples through in much wider and more sort of wide ranging ways. Right. So that's really quite clear, I think, uh, from this particular point. And again, I urge you to maybe reread the Mills or reread that part of the Mills article and then put that in conversation with what Ingold is suggesting and certainly in conversation with what Eduardo Cohn was suggesting. Right. So then it becomes a question of if not nature slash culture, then what? If we are not to be hamstrung into thinking of language as speech only in the way that Chomsky was uh, uh, suggesting. But if we were to be thinking um, and if we were to uh, sort of uh, separate uh, consciousness from thinking, right, in the way that Ingalls suggests, then what we are arguing or implying is that mind and organism far from standing in counterpoint as contrary substances, remember again, Descartes' dual substance dualism, his idea that mind and matter are incommensurable. If we don't start with that, but with the implication that both mind and matter are processes in the real world and aspects of that overall movement of becoming throughout nature, then we might be able to see and get past a certain idea of dualism towards what Whitehead has referred to as a creative advance into novelty. I mean, I think that's a very um, suggestive and sort of persuasive argument to not sort of start with the supposition that we already know what things are on the left and on the right, and then we know then how they relate to each other, but that basically left and right are both processes that are mutually implicating each other. And as they're interacting, they're changing each other constantly. And this then becomes uh, the foundation from which to think about an overall movement of becoming. So we are not being, right, here uh, in a fixed time and space but we are always in the process of becoming. And in this process, we are moving always in a direction of a creative advance into novelty. I, mean, I think this is um, the point at which I probably will end. I'm not suggesting here uh, a kind of philosophical um, sort of uh, agreement with, uh, say, the works of Deleuze and Guattari, but it's definitely uh, the suggestion is uh, more in that line of thinking than in this thinking of substance dualism and the positing of beings um, already formed and known. All right, so uh, I, I will end today's lecture there, and I'll just say that um, you know uh, the break should be a welcome one for you. I'm, I'm sure it is, but also a welcome opportunity to review some of the material and learning for this unit up to now. Um, another opportunity for you is the first assignment. Um, I have called it a photo essay assignment, and I would urge you all to not get too hung up on the photo essay part. It really is uh, photo essay and presentation. And what um, I will say, and I'll repost uh, the video post uh, for tips on this assignment, is to um, welcome this opportunity at an open and creative task.
right? Uh, so we're really primarily interested to learn and to know how you've been engaging with the unit content so far. And by this, I'm stressing modules one and two. Okay, so in that regard, I would definitely um, urge you all to uh, think about some points that you found most striking in the learnings in module one and two, and, and then try to construct a narrative. Um, maybe it might be easier for some of you to work on your presentation first. Um, and then only think about those photos that accompany the presentation. Or it might be that some of you are more visual and you want to go to the uh, photos first and then think about how um, these photos activate um, your learning for this unit. So I'm not looking for any single right way. There's no right way to do this task. I would urge you only to embrace it fully, be enthusiastic about it, and that we look forward to your very different and creative responses. Thanks very much. Have a good break.